Hej, and welcome to the history of Denmark. Episode 16. Rex Tyrannus. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the history of Denmark. Now that I have graduated high school, we are ready to continue our story. Last time, we watched as Eric of Pomerania was outmaneuvered politically, and his distant relatives gained the throne. First, it was Christopher of Bavaria, and after him, Christian I. Christian fought the Swedish noble turned warden, Steen Stuer, and after being defeated in the Battle of Brunkebjerg, which sent the Kalmar Union into chaos, he ended his reign by founding the University of Copenhagen. He died in the year 1481, and today we will see if his descendants managed to stabilize the now dangerously fragile Union. I want to begin today on the general level. We are fast approaching the end of the Middle Ages. In fact, many would say that this historical period can be said to have ended already in 1453, when the Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople from the Byzantines. The fall of the city caused many Greek refugees to flee to Italy, where they helped contribute to the Renaissance. However, the year 1453 represents the end of the medieval period in Europe generally, and since we are dealing with Denmark on this podcast, it would be interesting to see if we can find a more fitting date for our story. We are already past 1453, so you may have guessed that most historians place the date later, and you would be right. In late medieval Europe, cultural trends took far longer to spread than they do today, and so the developments in Italy in the mid-1400s took maybe as long as 100 years to appear in Denmark. The date used by most historians to mark the beginning of the Renaissance in Denmark is 1536, when the Protestant Reformation took place, 20 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door to the cathedral in Wittenberg. However, since the Renaissance was a gradual process, one of my goals today is to look for the signs that it was occurring before 1536, and then we will be ready to tackle the Reformation next time. The kings we will look at today are Hans and Christian II. Let us begin. When his father Christian I died, King Hans had been the heir for a long time, so there was no question that he would be the successor. However, since Sweden had left the Union under the leadership of Steen Stuer, Hans and his mother Dorothea decided to postpone the coronation and instead begin negotiations between the three noble councils of Denmark, Norway and Sweden. Their goal was to reach a settlement whereby the Kalmar Union could be fully restored. The negotiations took place in the city of Halmstad in Halland, located in modern-day southwestern Sweden. During the first two years of negotiation, it became clear that Steen Stuer was in no way interested in relinquishing power and so the goal of reintegrating Sweden was abandoned for the time being. Hans was crowned as King of Denmark and Norway in 1483. Getting the nobility behind them was no easy task though, and it was necessary to sign a charter which was particularly harsh. From now on, no one who was of low birth could hold important offices or be granted lands or titles. In addition, the crown could no longer acquire noble estates, neither through purchase nor confiscation, and it would now again be permissible to build private castles. These were tough demands, but Hans had a clever way to tackle the issue. He largely ignored the demands. Throughout his reign, King Hans appointed people of low birth to positions, even though it was against the charter, 
and he created conflict amongst the nobility by handing out estates to his favorites. All the while, his mother, Queen Dorothea, helped him administer the realm using her skills in finance. Because she was quite rich herself, she also loaned a significant amount of money to her son. In 1490, when her other son, Frederick, came of age, she used the debt owed to her by Hans to demand that Frederick be granted lands. It is unclear what her exact intention was, but some historians speculate that she may have wanted him to become the Duke of both Schleswig and Holstein. However, neither the nobles of the two duchies nor the king were interested in the inevitable conflict this would cause, so they decided on a compromise. Both duchies were split in two equal parts according to income, and the two brothers would be co-ruling dukes, who would be advised by the local nobility. We see here that the legal status of the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein was constantly challenged and modified. In the five years following this settlement, Frederick would also lay claim to the islands of Lolland, Falster and Moon, but this was rejected at a large meeting of the estates in 1494. The meeting stressed that Denmark proper could not be divided in the way Frederick proposed. The royal lands were inherited from the previous king and could not be split. This seems a little strange to me, given that this has happened very often previously in our story, most notably when several parts of Denmark were sold off to the German counts Johann and Gerhard, but I suppose it shows how fluid and uncertain the law was in this period. Perhaps it is also a sign that the medieval period is coming to a close in Denmark. In the midst of these legal squabbles, King Hans set his sights on becoming King of Sweden and restoring the Kalmar Union to its former glory. To this end, he signed an alliance in 1493 with Ivan III of Moscow. Ivan was a formidable ruler whose reign lasted for 43 years and saw the Grand Duchy of Moscow start on the path towards becoming the Russian Empire. For Ivan, the purpose of the alliance was to acquire parts of Finland, and it is believed that Hans had promised the Muscovite ruler just that. While the Danish king gathered his armies, of which a large part were German mercenaries, Ivan III launched the Russo-Swedish War of 1495. The fighting took place mostly around the Gulf of Finland, the body of water between Finland and Estonia. In the first part of the war, the Russians laid siege to the Swedish castle of Viborg, which is located in a bay to the northwest of modern-day St. Petersburg. After three months, the Swedes could hold out no longer, but they managed to scare off the Russians by setting fire to their supplies of gunpowder and creating a big explosion or so the story goes. After this, the forces of Ivan resorted to raiding the heartland of Swedish Finland, going as far west as the city of Tavastehus. The warden of Sweden, Sten Stuer, quickly got word of this, as he was residing in a city on the western coast of Finland, and he sent a force of 2,000 men in a counterattack to the newly constructed fortress of Ivangorod, on the border between Estonia and the Duchy of Moscow. Although the Swedes managed to take the fortress without any problems, they were not able to defend it for long, and they eventually set fire to the castle and sailed home. So, as you can tell, the war between Sweden and Russia looked like a draw. It did serve a purpose, however, at least if you were King Hans of Denmark and Norway. It created enough instability in Sweden that a faction within the council grew angry with the almost absolute power of Stenstua. He was deposed in 1497. Hans jumped at the chance and invaded Sweden from Scania, and when he met the remaining forces of Sten Stuer at the Battle of Rotebro, he was joined by the pro-Union Swedes. 
The battle took place on the 28th of September 1497, and although Steenstuer could muster an impressive force of 30,000 men, they were untrained peasants, and the cavalry army of King Hans easily defeated them. The former warden of Sweden first fled to Stockholm, but then cut a deal with the Danish king. Steenstuer would be pardoned and receive Finland as a possession, and gain a post in the royal administration, but would in turn surrender to Hans without further opposition. King Hans was crowned as King of Sweden in November that same year, and thus restored the Kalmar Union. You might be wondering, what about Ivan of Moscow? Hadn't he been promised Finland? Well, maybe. If he had, then Hans probably just broke the agreement. We have already seen that he was willing to ignore the charter he had signed with the nobles of Denmark and Norway upon his ascension, and Ivan had proved unable to defeat the Swedes in the war, so why should Hans cede land to an enemy that was not to be feared? Alternatively, he may never have made any concrete promises in the first place, and so could dodge any accusations. In any case, Ivan III was soon preoccupied with fighting the Lithuanians, and so did not pursue the question of Finland any further. To cement his rule as well as succession, Hans traveled to Sweden two years later with his wife, Queen Christina, and their son, the future Christian II, who was proclaimed heir to all three kingdoms. The successful war with Sweden no doubt whetted Hans's appetite for expansion, because he soon answered the call from his brother Frederick, the co-duke of Schleswig and Holstein, to fully incorporate Dithmarschen into the realm. You may remember from the last episode that during his journey to Italy, King Christian I, who was the father of Hans, managed to get the Holy Roman Emperor to agree to transfer the jurisdiction of Dithmarschen to Holstein, which was also upgraded to a duchy at this meeting. However, this stubbornly independent province still operated as a peasant republic, so the two brothers decided to force them into the Duchy of Holstein. The pretext was that they demanded permission to build three castles in the area, and when the peasants declined, they marched at the head of an army between 10 and 12,000 strong. It consisted of around 2,000 cavalry from Denmark and Holstein, 1,000 mercenaries from Saxony, and conscripted footmen from Denmark and Holstein, numbering around 10,000. Hans had secured the neutrality of the Hanseatic League, and it looked like the Danish forces would have optimal conditions. During the first month, February 1500, many cities had fallen, and the war appeared to be won already. After having taken the city of Meldorf on the 13th and massacred the inhabitants, the king was faced with a choice. Since the weather was turning warmer, it would be difficult for the army to move, as the frozen ground turned to mud. He could either wait for the weather to change or move out anyway. He decided on the latter because of the mounting costs for keeping the huge army raised. The forces moved out on the 17th and headed northwest to finish off the remainder of the peasant army. As they approached the town of Hemmingstedt, however, they ran into big trouble. The ground was so muddy that the army had to march in a thin line. Furthermore, behind the troops were dragged the artillery and wagons of the army, the latter of which were intended to transport the loot from the war. The muddy ground was caused in part by the weather, but also by the fact that the peasants of Dithmarschen had opened the dikes to the North Sea and flooded the area. The Danish army was walking right into an ambush. Because of the difficult terrain, the forces of King Hans lost their numerical superiority, and when they assaulted a roadblock, the peasants attacked. 
The fortification in the middle of the road was manned by a few hundred men who pelted the army with projectiles, such as armor pieces and boots, but the real damage was done from the sides. The peasants used lances as poles to vault over the flooded ground and attack the Danish troops. The Danes and their allied troops were completely routed, but because they could not escape to the sides, they had to retreat backwards where their cannons and wagons blocked the way. According to the Finnish historian Lena Huldén, 7,000 men on the Danish side were either cut down or drowned, and 1,500 were captured, while the Danish historian Alex Wittendorf claims that a third of the total army was killed. Many high-ranking nobles from Denmark and Holstein were killed, and King Hans and his brother Duke Frederick only narrowly escaped. In addition to this, the original banner, which was said to have fallen from heaven during the Battle of Tallinn in Estonia in 1219, was allegedly lost to the enemy and displayed in the city of Meldorf. As if all of this wasn't bad enough, the colossal defeat sparked a Swedish rebellion because the Swedes now perceived the king as weak. All in all, the campaign of February 1500 was an unmitigated disaster for Hans. It had cost him 200,000 coins to pay for the armies, and due to the Swedish rebellion, he was unable to make another attempt to subjugate Dithmarschen. The province would remain independent until 1559, when a Danish army finally conquered it, but even then it would retain some degree of self-governance until 1867, when they became a part of the new German state. The 19th century German history painter Max Friedrich Koch depicted the battle in his 1910 work titled Schlacht bei Hemmingstedt, which you can of course see on the post for this episode on the website. If you look down in the left corner of the painting, you can see some peasants pole vaulting over the flooded ditch. In case you've forgotten, the address is www.thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com. Within a year of the defeat of King Hans in Dithmarschen, the Swedish nobles had put aside their differences and turned their backs on the Danish king. Once again they had elevated Steen Stuer to the position of warden. Hans quickly sailed to Stockholm to try and stamp out the uprising, but when he realized that he could not stop it with the force he had brought, he left the city in the hands of his wife, Queen Christina, and returned to Denmark to gather more men. Because he also had to deal with a rebellion in Norway and strife with the Hanseatic League, however, he was too late to relieve her and she was forced to surrender Stockholm to Steen Stuer after holding out for seven months. During the siege of Stockholm, Hans was busy confiscating property in Denmark, perhaps as a means to raise money to put down the various uprisings. When the Hanseatic League refused to stop trading with Sweden, he arrested Lübeckian merchants and took possession of their property. He also capitalized on the murder of the very powerful and rich noble Paul Laxman and had the deceased man accused of having treasonous connections to the Swedes allowing Hans to confiscate his property as well. It is unknown if the king himself had a hand in the murder of Paul Laxman, but in any case, his death was certainly convenient. Hans then managed to negotiate the release of his wife in 1503, and in the same year, Steen Stuart died, making his distant relative, Svante Nilsson, the new regent and warden of Sweden. The rebellion in Norway was crushed by Christian, the son of Hans, who was sent there in 1502. He would later be made his father's viceroy, a sort of governor or representative, and rule Norway in his stead. Christian's main goals as a viceroy was to put down any rebellions that arose, to try and break the Hanseatic trade monopoly, and to place Danes on important posts to create stability. 
ruling Norway also gave Christian valuable experience with governing, preparing him to take over as king when his father died. At the negotiations in 1503, which resulted in the release of the queen, King Hans also made peace with Lübeck and the Hanseatic League by repaying an old Danish debt. He even got them to stop trading with Sweden, but the arrangement only lasted four years, as the Swedish market was too important for Lübeck to ignore. They broke the agreement and declared war on Denmark in 1507, and they were joined by the pro-independence faction in Sweden. This conflict prompted the construction of a significant Danish naval force and the appointment of the first admiral in Danish history. In fact, 1510 is the year officially used to mark the founding of the Royal Danish Navy, which celebrated its 500th birthday in 2010. Although this new fleet would eventually secure Danish domination of the seas, it would take a year before it could be finished, and so the Lübeckian ships ravaged the Danish coasts for the first few years of the conflict. Simultaneously, Christian attacked the Swedes from his base in Norway. Peace came in 1512 when the Warden of Sweden died. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, this Warden was Svend Nilsson, who had gained the post after his relative, Sten Stuer, died in 1503. The peace terms were as follows. Sweden would pay an annual tribute until they had recognized either Hans or his son as king, although the Swedes never actually followed up on this promise and the Hansa would relinquish any claim to monopoly on trade in the Baltic Sea, as well as compensate King Hans for the damage their pillaging had done. The Baltic Sea was now opened up to other merchant powers, most notably the Dutch. Besides the Netherlands, Hans also signed trade agreements with England, Scotland and France. The whole conflict was humiliating for Lübeck and the Hanseatic League, and it signaled that their time as a dominant power, both in trade and naval strength, was coming to an end. Another thing which was coming to an end was the reign of King Hans of Denmark. While on his way to northern Jutland in 1513, he fell from his horse as he was crossing the Skjern River. Although he was not killed by the fall, his health deteriorated steadily thereafter, and he died a few months later after reaching his destination. His royal motto was for law of flock, which means for law and flock. Hans had reigned for an impressive 32 years and managed to reclaim Sweden for a time and break the power of the Hansa. However, his reign is also stained by his embarrassing defeat at the Battle of Hemmingstedt in 1500 and his eventual failure to hold onto Sweden. To be fair to Hans though, holding onto Sweden looks like an almost impossible task for any king at this point. Speaking of the Swedes, after completely ignoring the Danish peace terms, they elected the son of Svend Nilsson Sten Stuer the Younger as their new warden. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Another Sten Stuer? Well, if you're tired of names repeating themselves, I have some bad news for you. Now that King Hans is dead, he will be succeeded by his son and proclaimed heir, Christian II. And from this point on, the name of the King of Denmark will alternate between Christian and Frederick all the way to the year 1972. King Christian took over the reins of power, but there was actually talk of naming Duke Frederick, the brother of Hans, as the next king instead. This came to nothing though, perhaps because the council felt that they could further their own position more with a younger king. The nobles complained to Christian that Hans had sidelined them and not obeyed the charter he had signed on his ascension. Christian II was therefore also forced to sign a harsh charter before he could be crowned. It stressed that only the nobility could be appointed as bailiffs and that the crown was not allowed to purchase noble property. 
If you recall, King Hans still managed to acquire significant amounts of land by seizing the property of the murdered noble Paul Laxman, and he actually pulled a similar trick in Norway when a prominent noble was found murdered there. Furthermore, the king was not allowed to name an heir in his lifetime. Upon his death, the council had the right to appoint the next king. And finally, the nobility was granted the right to lecture the king if they felt he had broken the terms of the charter. Christian II was crowned the year after, 1514, first in Copenhagen, and then later in the year in Oslo. The Swedes, of course, ignored him altogether, even though they had recognized him as heir in 1499. A major accomplishment of Christian II right from the get-go was the marriage he had arranged for himself. On the same day as his coronation, a noble who acted as his substitute married the 13-year-old Isabella in the city of Brussels. She was the granddaughter of Maximilian I of the House of Habsburg, the Holy Roman Emperor. Because her father Philip died 13 years before Maximilian, succession skipped a generation and the empire went to Isabella's brother, Charles V. Charles was a very powerful ruler who, due to some fortunate inheritances, was not only the Holy Roman Emperor, but also King of Spain and King of Italy, quite the brother-in-law for Christian II. Now that we are on the topic of marriage and family life, it is worth mentioning Christian's mistress. While he reigned as his father's viceroy in Norway from 1506 to 1512, he met two Dutch ladies who would greatly influence him and the policies he enacted as king. At a ball at the town hall in the city of Bergen, Christian met Duveke and the two became lovers. He also became acquainted with her mother, Sigrid, who probably had a trading post in the city. When he became king, he took both of them with him to court in Copenhagen. A few years later, in 1517, Duveke suddenly died, however, and a few months later, the nobleman Torben Oxe was executed. The charge against him is unknown, but it is widely believed that he murdered the king's mistress. In any case, it had the effect that the divide between Christian and the nobility grew, which was a defining characteristic of his reign, and that Sigrid, Duveke's mother, became one of his close advisors. Sigrid was particularly gifted in matters of finance, perhaps because she was a merchant herself, but another important aspect of her influence on the king was that he developed an affection for the Netherlands. During his reign, he would seek to emulate the successful Dutch merchant cities, most notably in 1520, when he created a trading company modeled after those known in the Netherlands. The death of his lover also made him turn to his wife, Isabella, who he had largely ignored up until this point. Across the Sound, Steen Stuart the Younger, the Warden of Sweden, still refused to recognize Christian II as king. In addition, he harassed the pro-Danish Archbishop of Uppsala, Gustav Trolle, which gave Christian a pretext for war. Now was the time to revive the Kalmar Union once and for all and crush the Swedish resistance. Or so he thought. From 1517 to 1518 the two sides clashed, but with no decisive outcome. A two-year truce was made, but Christian broke it shortly after. In 1520 the King of Denmark and Norway launched a winter offensive against Sweden and fought his way to Stockholm. This campaign resulted in the death of Steen Stuart the Younger, and Christian II was able to enter Stockholm on the condition that he spared the widow and any followers of the former warden. On the 4th of November 1520, Christian was crowned as King of Sweden. All three Scandinavian kingdoms were united once more. But dark clouds were on the horizon. 
On the evening of the third day of feasting, after the coronation, the doors to the Stockholm castles were locked, and Archbishop Trolle stepped forward. He then accused 18 of the guests of assaulting him, referring to the harassment he suffered during the reign of Steen Stuart the Younger. King Christian proclaimed that the previous offer of amnesty did not apply here, since this was a matter of the church, not of the state. In order to avoid problems with the Pope, he had to support the Archbishop, he claimed. At dawn on the 8th of November, the accused 18 were led away by Danish soldiers. The widow of Stenstua was among the gathered, and presented a document wherein the entirety of the Swedish anti-union nobility took responsibility for the actions against the Archbishop. She hoped that this would lead to the king dropping the charges, since there would be simply too many people to imprison without consequence. She was wrong. Eighty-two men were arrested, and their trial began on the 9th of November. Archbishop Trolle accused them of heresy, for which the punishment was death. Beginning the same day and lasting until the 10th, 82 prominent men were beheaded or hanged at the main square in an event known to history as the Stockholm Bloodbath. Their widows were shipped to Denmark where they were held hostage. The event would ensure that King Christian would forever be known by the Swedes as Tyrant Christian. Soon after the Stockholm bloodbath, King Christian left Sweden and went on a trip to the Netherlands to meet with his brother, Emperor Charles V, who, to the dismay of Duke Frederick, transferred the Duchy of Holstein to Christian. This ended the arrangement which had been made between Hans and Frederick under pressure from their mother, and would cause great dissatisfaction for Duke Frederick. As I mentioned earlier, the Netherlands were a role model for the king, especially in matters of trade. The reforms made by Christian following his trip to the Netherlands took the form of two laws, the land law and the city law. As opposed to, for example, the law of Jutland from 1241, these were not regional laws, but were effective in the entire realm, excluding the duchies. Let us begin with the city law. Merchant cities such as Copenhagen now received a monopoly on all trade, so that the church, the peasants, the nobility, the craftsmen and foreign merchants all had to buy and sell via these cities. The mayors and city councillors were appointed by a new office, the so-called Skultus, who was in turn appointed by bailiffs. The appointment of these would now be handled by the king, so the merchant cities would be directly subservient to the crown. In order to attract foreign trade, shipwrecks would no longer be confiscated, but instead salvaged and stored until the owner could collect his goods. In addition, the measurement system of Copenhagen was made the standard for the whole realm. Now for the land law. Peasants were granted more rights in that it was now no longer legal for landowners to buy and sell them indiscriminately, like cattle, and they were no longer tied forever to the farm where they were born. Men of the church were no longer allowed to buy lands unless they were married, a frontal assault on celibacy. It was also forbidden for these to have their trials handled in other realms, meaning that appealing to the Pope to arbitrate in cases was a thing of the past. This was a general tendency in Europe at the time. The so-called national churches were established, which were independent of the Pope. You may have a feeling of what could have inspired rulers like Christian II to implement laws such as these, which broke fundamentally with the doctrines we associate with the Middle Ages. Now, to finish off the land law, it was made mandatory to clean streets and sidewalks every Saturday, new brick houses and roadside taverns were constructed, 
All children were required to either attend school, learn a craft, or work in agriculture. Prostitutes were referred to special neighborhoods, but mistreatment of them was forbidden. And finally, it was made a capital offense to spread false news or gossip about the king. As you can tell, this was quite the legal reform, and it was a huge step in guiding Denmark into the Renaissance, one of the signs I talked about in the intro. To top it all off, Christian settled 184 Dutch families in Copenhagen, where they would pioneer gardening and city farming. At the same time as King Christian of Denmark was visiting the Netherlands, a young man aged 25 returned to Stockholm to mourn his father. Gustav Eriksson was the son of Erik, a nobleman who had been executed in the Stockholm bloodbath for supporting the independence faction led by Steen Stuer. His son had been taken captive by the Danish king and held hostage, but he escaped captivity and traveled via Lübeck to Stockholm. From here he went inland to the province of Dalarna, where he found his first supporters among the miners. Soon a full-blown rebellion against the tyrant king, as the Swedes called him, was underway, with this Gustav Eriksson as its leader. Within the first year, Archbishop Trolle of Uppsala tried and failed to put down the uprising, and the year after, Gustav, who was now warden, allied himself with Lübeck, which sent its fleet into the Sound and burned Helsingør. The Danish king received news of the rebellion, but did not do much about it. He was busy, at first with traveling, then with his legal reforms, and then with an uprising in Denmark. On the 6th of June, 1523, Gustav Eriksson of the House of Vasa was proclaimed King of Sweden by the Swedish Riksdag, consisting of representatives from the nobility, clergy, merchants and peasants. The Kalmar Union was dead, and the Kingdom of Sweden was reborn, ready to act as the formidable rival of Denmark for 300 years to come. The nobles of Denmark were absolutely outraged by the laws Christian had enacted, even though they had signed most of them. Well aware of their discontent, the king's uncle, Duke Frederick, who himself had a bone to pick with his nephew because of the loss of the Duchy of Holstein, negotiated with Lübeck and many nobles, most of them from Jutland, to have himself made king. On the 1st of January, 1523, half a year before Gustav Vasa was crowned as king of Sweden, the rebellion was declared. The rebels accused Christian of being controlled by Siegfried, who they suggested might be a witch. An official alliance with Lübeck was made, and in March, Frederick was hailed as king in the city of Viborg in northern Jutland. Under the brilliant German commander Johann Ratzau, the forces of Frederick occupied all of Denmark. Only Copenhagen and Malmö held out. Frederick would eventually win the war and become Frederick I of Denmark. More on him next time. I want to end today by covering the first part of Christian's exile. Christian had fled Copenhagen by ship with Siegfried and his wife to the Netherlands, where he hoped to receive help from Emperor Charles. Christian II did not manage to raise an army, however, mainly because the emperor was preoccupied with a war with France, but also because he lacked the money to maintain any troops. Christian and his wife spent some time in the city of Wittenberg, where they became acquainted with the famous German monk Martin Luther. They both flirted with or converted to Protestantism during their time in Germany, but this only worsened the relationship with the Emperor, who was a staunch Catholic. They returned to the Netherlands for a time, and here their money began to run out. They pawned off most of their possessions. In 1526, three years after their exile began, Queen Isabella died, and, soon after, 
Christian's children were taken from him to be raised as Catholics. They would later be married off to various European lords. This sent Christian into deep melancholy, and he spent years traveling between the Netherlands and Germany, trying to gain the support he needed to retake Denmark. We will return to him in the next episode. That is all for today. We have covered the reigns of Hans and Christian II of Denmark, who both failed to bring Sweden into the fold for good. As of the year 1523, when Frederick becomes King of Denmark, the Kalmar Union is no more, and Christian II is in exile. Next time we will see if the Tyrant King can retake his kingdom, and we will also be exploring the legendary civil war which played a big part in the Reformation, the Count's Feud. Thank you for listening to the History of Denmark. Just a quick reminder before I go, I am now back to my regular schedule of one episode every three weeks. So until then, goodbye. Thank you.